Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and show us what you would want us to see from all of this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. And uh, we've been talking about all the evil of the last days and all the stuff that was going to be happening during the last days. So verse 10 starts with, but. <laughs> but you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me in Antioch and Lyconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we'll stop there. So Paul is telling Timothy, you know. You know what I teach. And this is something that sometimes people question, you know, why does Paul say my doctrine? Well, it's basically the fact that he taught something that was not normally taught. All right. God had showed him that his, God's grace was applied to Gentiles. All right. And that was a big deal. In the early church, that was a huge deal. We remember in Acts when Peter was told, go to Cornelius' house and teach him. And he got called on the carpet by the other disciples, like, what do you think you were doing going to a Gentile's house and preaching? And he gave them the whole story about seeing the sheet and God telling him to go, and, and they still did not understand it. The first place they went as they were being driven out of Jerusalem was Damascus and Antioch. And they started preaching to Gentiles. And, you know, because this was where God was moving them to. And they did not understand it. They had trouble with it. The disciples had trouble with it. And, and we sometimes think, you know, well, the disciples, they should have known better. And yes, they should have known better. But they were still Jewish. And the Jewish people had great animosity to anybody who was a Gentile or a non-Jew. They hated them. They really did. They were, these, they were worshipers of multiple gods. They didn't follow the one God. They... They were troublemakers. They made life miserable for them. They didn't obey the Sabbath. They didn't obey God's rules. They were, they were terrible people that were headed to hell, and why do we want to have anything to do with them? That was the disciples' attitude about Gentiles. And it really was before Paul got saved and got trained by God, that would have been his attitude. He was a Pharisee. You know, he didn't even like most Jews. <laughs> much less Gentiles, because most Jews weren't being as obedient as he would have thought they needed to be. And then he was called to go to see and preach to the Gentiles. It's an amazing thing to me to watch how God moves us to deal with some of the areas that we had the greatest trouble thinking about. You know, the disciples to the Gentiles. Uh, he, he sent Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh was the enemy of the, of, the, of the Jewish people. And why did he run the opposite way? Because he goes, God, I'm glad you, you're going to destroy them. Let me get as far away from them as possible so that you'll destroy them because I don't want them to listen to and repent. He understood that if they repented, God would spare them. And then they would be trouble to Israel. <laughs> and so he going, I'm going to run the other direction. And God puts him in the middle of Nineveh. Many times God will put us to minister to the to ones that we would dislike the most. And I've seen this over and over. Corey Tenboom, you know, was called to go minister 
to the German people for a long time. Now, and even worse, God told her to minister to the guards that were in her camp. And she's going, no way, no how. And God kept putting them in front of her so that she would learn forgiveness and learn to be able to minister. And oftentimes God will do that to us. The people we feel like we dislike the most or hate the most, God may just call us to be ministering to those types of people. Not always, but often. And Paul says, you know my doctrine. I am grace-oriented and the Gentiles are accepted by God. This is what he's telling Timothy. All right. He goes, not only do you know my doctrine, you know my manner of life. How did I conduct my life? I lived in a way that people could look and see that I was a righteous person. And this is my challenge to us as Christians is can people look at our life and see that we represent God? Hopefully. Now again, we're not going to be perfect, but they should be able to see that there's something different in our life. Do we have joy? Do we have peace? Are we, when bad things happen to us, do we immediately fall apart like the rest of the world? Or do we stand before God and say, God, I may not understand what's going on, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And they look at us and go, you guys are crazy. You all are crazy, but they also respect it because we don't react the way that they would react. And this is something that's important. He goes, you know my manner of life and my purpose, which is, is set in his view. How does he view things? And for us as Christians, we should view things totally different than the world. Our view is that God is in control. Our view is that there are no uh, coincidences because God is in control. The world will look at it and say, boy, boy, didn't you just get lucky? Everything just fell in place for you. No, God placed it in control for me. Oh, you're just lucky. Yeah, yeah. No, God put it in control. God placed it there. Our whole outlook should be focused on God and God being in control. And then when things do seem to go wrong for us, we go, okay, God, don't know what you're trying to teach or, or do, but I'm going to trust you. And this is where it's important for us. How do we actually view life in its practical sense? It's all good, you know, good to say, well, God, I believe you're in control, and then grumble and gripe about everything bad that seems to happen to us. Because what you're doing there, we're showing that we don't really believe that God's in control. Oh, God, you've, lost, you've gone out of your mind. You, you went on vacation or something and turned your back on me, and look at all this stuff that happened to me. You know, you are not in control is what, what we say a lot of times by our action. Even though we will say, God, you're in control. You are sovereign. You're everywhere. You know what's going on at all times. Oftentimes our life will say, God, you don't know what's going on. Uh, God, we're smarter than you. God, I, I, this cannot be good for me, be, uh, good because I don't think so. And God, you know that I'm just a little smarter than you are. Now, we would never say that to him. But don't we really say that oftentimes in the way we react to things? This is not the way that I would have done things. God never hired us to be his consultants. God does not need consultants to tell him what to do. And yet we oftentimes will have, God, uh, you know, I'm down here. You can hire me as your consultant. I'll tell you how to get these things taken care of and do it right. You know, again, those are things we would never actually come out and say, but sometimes we act that way. And Paul's saying, you know my purpose. He goes, you know my faith. And this is something that's very interesting. Paul is the one that said, I've learned to be content with much and with He's willing to walk when 
says to do something, he does it. Even if he's going to... He said that I have been beat times. Now most of us would say, okay, one would have been too many. Two is way too many times. And three times? Uh -uh, God, you need to send me... This is going to be ridiculous. And yet he kept going where God... Knowing that it might cost him. Went to Jerusalem knowing that it was going to cost him. Because everywhere he went, a prophet would come in and say you're going to suffer in Jerusalem. And he's going, yes, I know, just be quiet. I know I'm going to suffer in Jerusalem. But God, you know, he was absolutely, and I don't know whether he was just dead set on doing what he wanted to, or if God had called him and those prophets were a test to see if he was going to be obedient. I have no idea. I tend to believe he had, was headstrong, because that's how I would be. Once I've set my mind on doing something, it is almost impossible to stop me from doing it. You really got to take take me down completely, you know, because I'm gonna. I've been a manager all my life, and I make things happen. I have a feeling Paul might have been doing that on certain points of his life, as I'm just going to do what I want to do, and and I can't prove that, but I can understand that attitude that he could have had. He goes in also. He goes my long suffering. You know, he suffered long, and he was willing to go through things. How many of us as Christians, the moment something bad happens, we immediately say, well, that can't be God's will. I'm not going to do it anymore. You know, something bad happened. One thing I know for sure is oftentimes when I'm following God, bad things happen. Satan comes in to try to stop what's going, what's going on. Always. He, he is not... He is not up there looking and saying, well, that person's really set on fire for God. I'm just going to let them raise God's kingdom up without, without trials and tribulations. He's out there to say, well, this person is starting to hurt my kingdom a little bit. I'm going to stop them. And this is, I tell people this all the time when they're getting ready to serve. Get ready for the attacks from Satan. Always. When you step out to serve God, you need to be ready for Satan to try to, to stop you. Now, when I say Satan, most of us are not important enough for us to actually have to deal with Satan himself. We will deal with his, some of his minions. Now, if we get well-known, maybe <laughs> we'll have to deal with Satan. But most of us deal with other, the other fallen angels under him. But it's his dominion. All right? And he's not just going to say, oh, well, I lost that person. We'll just let them really build the kingdom of God over there on that corner that he's going to try to stop us. And this is really important. When we first get saved, if, if we get on fire for God, then Satan is going to try to stop us. If all we want to do is go to church and sit in the pew and do nothing, Satan is not really going to care. Yeah, he lost a soul from, you know, you know, from going to hell with him. But if we don't do anything, he's not really worried about us. When we get out and we start talking about God, we start living for God, we start being an example for God, and all of a sudden we start getting his attention, just like Job did, and it's like, I need to stop this person. I need to stop this person from ministering and bringing more damage, you know, you know, more people to the kingdom of God. And this is all very important. Be ready. You know, usually we look at the you know, first time we have trouble, and oh, well, I'm going the wrong direction. God's trying to stop me. Well, that might be true if you're doing something evil, but if you're doing some work for God, it's probably not God trying to stop you. You need to keep moving forward and saying, I am going to move forward because God has said to do this. 
and I'm not going to let Satan stop me. And the one thing that I have learned, when Satan finds out what it takes to stop you, you're in trouble. Now, how does Satan get a lot of people from going to church? He gives them a little sickness in the morning. I call it the six to, six to nine sickness. They're sick for about that hour. They decide to stay home, and all of a sudden, they feel really good once church starts. And it's too late to go to church. You know, I've got my headache, i got my sniffles, and then 11 o'clock when churches are started, all that stuff disappears and you feel good the rest of the day. You know, uh, for couples, a lot of times, you know, it's very amazing, a couple will end up having a fight on their way to church so that they're not in a mood to go to church and listen. Uh, if that's not enough and you've got some kids, something will happen with the kids on your way out the door. You know, they'll get dirty, they'll, they'll mess their diapers, they'll fight, they'll do anything to put you in a bad mood and make you late for church. And if that keeps you from going to church, guess what happens every single week? That those kids will get into trouble and get, and get something to happen to keep you from going to church. We need to be able to understand that this is a issue. I fell for this when I was back in the restaurant business and I would close on a Saturday night and not get home until three, four o'clock in the morning sometimes. Because you had to clean, you didn't, you didn't close until one o'clock, and then you had to clean up the mess, and you'd get busy right at close. So you could not do anything ahead of time. And you'd have two hours of getting, getting done, everything done, and then you'd have, you know, and then you got home, and there was no way you were wanting to go to bed at three o'clock in the morning because you've been running around and getting excited. And by the time you fell to bed, it was now time to get back up to go to church. There were times when I'm going, I'm just too tired. Guess what started happening? Every Saturday night when I closed, we had a rush and be short-handed and have to stay, stay long and I'd be tired. Satan learns what it takes to, to, to get us to quit. So I finally just got to a place, I'm going to church. I may fall asleep during church, but I'm going to church because I was not going to be stopped from going to church anymore. But <laughs> finally learned I, I can be taught <laughs> after a period of time, I can be taught. And then he goes, my charity, which love, charity and in the King James means love in most, in most cases, and patient. Patience is what one of the things God wants us to learn is to just be patient. And then he goes, and okay, so now these are the positives. Now he starts going some of the other things. The persecutions I went through. Now, if you want to learn about Paul's persecutions, read the book of Acts and see all the persecutions that he went through. He was beat. He was chased out of town. He had to face opposition everywhere he went. He was shipwrecked. Satan tried to keep him from getting places. Over and over again, we see the persecutions of Paul. Did God cause those, or did he just allow it to happen, or he just knew that it would Yes. I don't think he caused most of those things, but he allowed them to happen. And some of it would be to say, are you going to be uh, faithful in what you know you're supposed to do? Well, God knew where he was at. But it shows people where they're at. You know, when, when Job went through all of this, we, we have the advantage. We have the first couple chapters of Job to tell us what was going on. Job did not have those chapters to tell him what was going on. All he knew is he was going through hell on earth. His family had been killed. He lost all of his, his wealth. His health was taken away. He did not know that this was all Satan going to God and saying, you know, hey, God, you know, Job's, Job's only following you because of his blessings. He did not know what was going on. All he knew was, my life has been turned upside down. Somebody just pulled the carpet out from under me, picked up my life, shook it upside down, and, and made a mess out of it. 
and yet he stayed faithful with God. We have the great advantage. We go, well, how could, you know, Job, don't, don't react. We, 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 this is just a test from God. He did not know that. Now, we do have an advantage now in our day and age because we know the story of Job. And Job was not a one-time isolated event. It happens to people all the time. Satan has to ask God for permission to touch his children. I personally believe that Satan has to ask permission to touch anybody in this world because God is still in control. Satan is a created being who does not get to do the things he wants to do. He, has to, he, he is given limits. Even during the tribulation period, Satan will have limits placed on him. Now, he's going to be given a lot of leeway, but he has limits. Why do I know that? Because his number one goal would be to wipe out humanity. If he had his option, you would die before you were born. All the time. Because if you, once you're born, you have a chance of turning to God. So his goal would be to kill you as early as possible. And if he had free will, he would kill everybody. There would not be any future generations of humanity. God has limited him and said, no, you can't do that. You cannot kill all of humanity because humanity belongs to God. And I believe that Satan has to always ask. And God gives him a little more leeway to, to the lost world than he does the, the, the Christians. But he also gives, gives quite a bit of leeway for us Christians. <laughs> so we need to understand that there is a war going on. And a lot of people don't like to hear that, but there is a spiritual war going on for everybody. Satan is trying to hurt God by taking his precious creation, human, humans, away from God into hell. And we've said this over and over, Satan is not the king and master of hell. He is an inmate in hell, and he's just trying to hurt God by taking as many people away from God as possible. He is not the ruler of hell. He is an inmate. Hell was created for Satan and the demons as punishment. It's their prison. He's not the master of the, of the prison. He is an inmate of the prison. So if he can make an appearance before God, he's not really in hell yet. He's not in hell yet. He has not been. Remember, the demons asked Jesus on two occasions, have you come to send us away before the time? There's a time coming when they will be cast into hell. Now, they were cast out of heaven, but they have not been cast into hell yet. They don't know when. They just know, they just know that they, don't, they, don't, they know it's coming. And they know the scriptures better than we do. Even those of us who have studied it, they know it better. They've had a lot longer to study it. Uh, they know there's a time coming that they're going to be punished. And because they are in a different time, because they are spiritual, they may just realize that it's short. Their time is short. All right. Uh, now they will be cast into hell when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation period. Satan will be cast into hell. Satan will be released from hell at the end of the millennial kingdom to tempt man. Then everybody at the end of the millennial kingdom will stand, all, the sin, all those who have rejected Jesus and all the uh, demons and Satan will stand before God at the white throne judgment and every knee will bow, including Satan and the demons, before they're cast into the lake of fire, which is the final death. How do I explain this? Hell is like jail. The lake of fire is more like prison. And it's permanent. Hell is a temporary holding cell. It's both the same. They're both bad. They're both, they're both painful. They're both uh, 
described the same except that the lake of fire is the very end is where death and Hades and everybody is thrown into all the evil goes into the lake of fire for eternity so this is you know sometimes we mix the two two terms up but they are two very different entities all right so he says these afflictions and he goes specifically he mentions Antioch Iconium and Lystra what persecutions I endured and then he goes but out of them all the Lord delivered me this is our good news anything that comes our way that we think is bad God will deliver us from now that delivery might be that he takes us home I don't mind that delivery at all I'm looking forward to the day that I get to go home and not have to pay you know deal with this world anymore I'm not in a hurry to do it in one sense and one sense yes I'm in a great hurry God take me home today take me home this minute but as long as I have something useful to do in this world, minister to people, give the gospel message out to people, then I want to be here and do what God wants me to do. As soon as I'm done with that, take me home, God, and make it quick. You know, uh, and this is what he's saying. God delivered out of all his persecutions. And we can pick any character in the Bible we want to look at and watch how God delivered them from their persecutions. You know, think of somebody like Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery. You know, and at that point, he's probably looking at, God, you showed me a vision of these guys bowing down to me. How are they going to bow down to me now that I'm a slave in Egypt? Okay, God, I'm, I'm going to do your will. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be, be wonderful. You know, I'm a slave to Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife lies about him trying to rape her. And he's thrown into prison. And going, oh my goodness, I was a slave, that was bad enough, now I'm a prisoner. Now, we think about this, the, the, the punishment in Egypt for, for rape was execution. I don't believe Potiphar believed his wife, but he had to take something, he had to take action against her accusations. And he's only a, prison, he's only a slave, so we'll just throw him into prison. I don't believe he did what she says, so he throws him into prison. You know, from his perspective, he's just gone from bad to worse. You know, how am, I, how am my brothers ever going to bow down? You know, God, you, you lied to me about this vision. He could have been saying that, but apparently he never, never believed it. There's no place where he curses God or rebels against God. It, he just suffers. For 13 years, he suffers. Now, how many of us would suffer for 13 years and stay on God's side? You know, not many. And then he gets his promotion. And then he gets to see his brothers bow down before him. You know, and all of a sudden, everything starts coming true. Everything that he saw happens. Abraham told you're going to have a son, you're going to have a great nation. He's almost 100 years old before he gets his son. You know, and then he only gets one. He's going, God, this doesn't look like a nation. But he never said that. Now, his son gets the same promise, Isaac. Isaac doesn't have kids right away either, and when he finally has kids, he has two. Two kids to make a nation. And we're going, God, uh, don't you understand that it takes a lot more people to make a nation? You know, one is not a nation, two is not a nation. And then we get Jacob, who ends up with 12. 
12 kids. And out of his kids become, become a nation. But even he was told, you're going to have a nation, and still 12 is not a nation. God, by man's standards, was very slow in acting. But yet when they come out of Egypt, there's over 3 million of them coming out of Egypt. 600 plus thousand fighting men. And they were all probably married, and many, most of them probably had kids. So we know that there was at least 100, you know, 1.2 million plus. So most people say about 3 million Jewish people left Israel, uh, left Egypt on the Exodus. Finally, had a nation. Finally. <laughs> after four generations after Jacob, we had a nation of over 3 million people, around 3 million people. God kept his word over a long period of time. And we can go through all the different characters in the Bible, but I think that's enough for us to be able to see that you cannot be victorious in your living until you have a trial to be victorious over. I've talked to so many Christians, they want to have a victorious life, and what they mean is I want no problems. I'm going, well, you can't have victory without problems. If you don't, you know, uh, it's the idea of I'm going out to the football field and I get, I get beat up on Friday night when I play the opponent, but I go out Saturday and I win all day because I run across the, across, across the goal line with no enemy, nobody trying to stop me. Or Thursday while I'm practicing, I ran across that goal line all day long. Nobody stopped me. I, I scored hundreds of points and nobody stopped me. Well, big deal. <laughs> big deal. You ran across the line with a football in your hand. You didn't have anybody stopping you. That wasn't a victory. And we instinctively know it when we bring it down to that level. But when we talk about living a victorious Christian life, we're going, God, I just don't want any problems. That would be total victory for me. No, that would be a very boring life, actually. Now, we all need challenges in our life. Now, sometimes some of us think we've had too many challenges in our life. But God is saying, I'm going to teach. I'm going to help you learn. And this is what he says, God delivered me out of all my, all my trials. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. God is there. He wants to deliver us. He has a plan to deliver us. Now, his plan for deliverance isn't always our, our plan for deliverance. It's not even what we would like sometimes in our own mind. If we live long enough, we realize that his plan was great. We will see at some point when looking back that God's plan is good. And if we don't see it in this lifetime, when we get to heaven and we see all of what was going on around us, we're going, oh, that's why you didn't allow this to happen. This is why you did something. You know, and I'm, I, I've heard it said, and I agree with it. We would be terrified if we saw everything in the spiritual world going on around us. All the battles, all the demons, all the angels, and the battles going on around us would terrify us if we had really saw it in this life. And this is something that is very interesting. God steps in, his angels step in every once in a while uh, and do things. Uh, my wife jokingly says she'll know her, know her angel when she gets to heaven because he's going to be covered with, with grease stains because one day she's driving down the road and the tie rod went out on the, on the car. Now, those of you who understand the tie rod, you cannot steer when your tie rod goes out. She made a right-hand turn and two left-hand turns to pull into a parking space without a tie rod. How do I know that that was? Because there's a gouge mark for, for, for about 80 feet when she made those 
those turns. You can't do that with a tie rod out. So her angel was there holding her tire still so that she could make her turns. You know, and I went in, I'm going, I don't, know how you, I don't know how you got into this parking space. I don't know why you're not dead. Because your tie rod went out. Her angel came in and protected her. And she jokes about it, you know, it's a long time ago, but she still will joke about it, you know, that she'll know her angel because her angel had the grease stains and holding that tire in place. God steps in at times. Now, it could have very easily been that he wouldn't have stepped in, but he stepped in in that time. For whatever reason, I don't know. Why does he step into our lives at all when we're going through hard times? Why have people had knives or axes or bullets coming their way and all of a sudden they veer off at the last possible moment because an angel has moved them? You know, I don't know. God does. He's got his reason for it. And the next person gets hit by it. You know, and maybe they're not even as good or better than that person. We don't know. And God says, this is what I've got planned. We don't know why he does things. Our job is just to accept that he is sovereign. And I love the fact that God is sovereign. He is going to do what he wants to. Now, I don't always agree with what he's doing in my life. You know, but I do usually sit back and say, God, you're in control. I'm not very happy with this, but you know what's best. Now, I may not do that instantly. <laughs> it may take me a little while to get there. But I am getting better for time to just say, God, you know what's best. And it gets hard sometimes when bad things happen to you or seem to be happening to you to say, God, I don't know why you're allowing this. You know, he may allow things like he did recently where my car goes out and it costs me a lot of money that I don't have. Okay, God, I don't know why you're doing it, but I'm going to accept that you did it. Thank God I had a way to pay for it. And say, all right, God, why? What, what is your purpose? I don't know. I still don't know why. I may not know why when I, until I get to heaven. But he had a reason to be able to say, I'm going to trust God. And that might be the only reason. God, I'm going to trust you no matter what. And we need to get to this place where we're willing to say, God, I trust you no matter what you allow into my life. And that's hard. It really is hard, especially if you think everything's going wrong. All things work together for good. So God has a reason. Things do not randomly happen to us because he's got a plan. No. Now, I may cause it. I may deserve what I get. I don't know. My goal is just to say, God, you're in charge. Because if, if he does not want something to happen, it's not going to happen. Proverb tells us the heart of the king is in his hand. He turns it whichever way he wants. God is in control. Now, we may, we may think that he's forgotten us, may think that he has no good reason for it, but he is in control. And we just need to learn to trust his control. Uh, because we don't know why, and sometimes it is because we've sinned and we deserve it. Sometimes it's because somebody else has sinned and we end up getting in the way. But even then, God is in control. And you know, this is the problem that people will go, well, if God is really God, he can stop all bad things from happening. Absolutely, God could stop. He could take all of our free will away and make us be robots. And I love doing that. When I was in college, I used to love doing, well, you know, can't God do it? I'm going, yeah, do you want me to, do you want to start with us? What do you mean? I'm going, I'll pray that you cannot do anything that you don't want to do. What? No way. I go, that's how God would stop us from, from bad things from happening. He would have to take away our free will. But you don't want it because you don't really, it's just an excuse. It's just an excuse to not follow God because bad things happen 
and it's not really what you want. You don't want God to take away free will. And, you know, and, you know, we have to understand that people make excuses all the time. And when we're witnessing to them, don't, don't just accept their excuse at face value. Challenge their excuse because they don't really mean it. They don't really mean that I don't, you know, if your God could really be that strong, you know bad things would happen. They don't want the consequence, but we just have to be thinking about what would the consequence? Yes, God could stop all bad things from happening, but he'd have to stop everybody that did things wrong that led to that bad, bad event in the first place. And most people aren't wanting to do that. Well, I want to be able to drink and get drunk and be stupid, but I don't want anybody else to do it. You know, uh, because somebody else might get hurt. Well, you might hurt some. Well, no, if God, you know, if God was willing in control, no, nobody could hurt by me being stupid. Well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and this is what we need to have people understand. Verse 12, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue you in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from a child you have known the holy scriptures which were able to make you wise unto salvation through the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So here's Paul continuing. Yea, surely, <laughs> you know, absolutely true. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. When I hear a Christian say that they have never been persecuted, I come back to this kind of verse, so you must not be living a very godly life. If you're living a godly life, you will. It's not, it's not even questioned. You will have persecution. Now, we in America have had it fairly easy. We consider persecution being taunted and being made fun of. And from our perspective, that is persecution, I guess. And I know people who say, well, I haven't even had that. Well, so, so you have not taken a stance on any godly thing in your entire life. You've gone to the parties and you've drank and, and drugged and everything just like your, all of your friends and you didn't stand out and do what God said. You didn't go to church at various times and make people make fun of you for being a Christian. You haven't been saying, no, I'm not going to drink. No, I'm not going to do drugs. No, I'm not going to sleep around and have people make fun of you. If you live godly, there will be persecution. For America, currently, that means just being given a hard time. It's coming that it may mean our very life and, and, and freedom. There may very soon be a time when we go to prison for taking a stand for God. And it's coming fast. The laws that we are building in, in our country were based on European and Canadian laws that pastors and Christians go to prison for saying what God says. Just for saying it. If you, if you're in, if you live in Canada and you preach that homosexuality is a sin, you can go to prison. And many of the pastors have gone to prison for saying that homosexuality is a sin. It's coming in our country. We have a bill right now in front of the Congress and Senate that will make it illegal to do so. And so we could very soon have to be in prison because of taking a stand that matches for God. And they're saying that you cannot say those things even if you believe them for, for, for your religious beliefs. We think, we think that that would never happen. It's hard for us as older people to realize that the Constitution used to give us uh, protections. 
And if you read the news and everything, they're saying the Constitution is out of date, who cares about it, don't, we shouldn't live by it. They don't know what they're asking for. They're asking for tyranny without the Constitution. But because it stops them from doing the things they want to do, they don't like it. They don't like Christians because we say that there are rules. And we're not saying it, God says it. There are rules on how we are to live and behave. And as soon as we say that, they don't like it. And they start attacking us. But Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. Paul says that all who live godly will be persecuted. And around the world, outside of America and possibly most of Europe and, and Canada, there are Christians who die within, within two or three years of becoming a Christian. The lifespan in, of a Christian in many Muslim countries is about two to three years after they become a Christian. They will be killed. And they still come to Christ because there's something worth coming to. There's something worth dying for. And they understand that. We in America need to get our act together because this is coming our way. Prison, possibly death, is coming. And we need to be ready for it. And this is what he's saying. All that live godly will, not, not may, not might, he says shall or will suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, causing people to stray and going astray, all right, being deceived. The evil is getting worse and worse. And this is one of the reasons I think we're at the end days because all around the world, not just certain nations and everything, but virtually everywhere in the world, we're going from worse to worse. And people are doing what is right in their own eyes, just as we were told. It would be like the days of Noah when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And we're getting there very quickly in this world. Don't dare judge me, I think it's okay. It's amazing to me how we go through and we think all the stuff that's happening to us is new. It's never happened before. We've never had anything like this. And over, as we read through the scriptures, it's happened over and over and over again. People are doing what they think is right. And they don't want a standard on them. Matter of fact, those of us who tell them this is what God says, we are going to be attacked. How dare you believe this? You're, you're, you're keeping me from, from doing what I want to do and you, you're so judgmental and you are so, so uh, conspiratory and you're trying to take away my freedom to do what I want and all the other things that they say. And if you've witnessed, you've heard them. If you share God, you've heard them. All over the place you hear these attacks. Right now we're hearing them on the, on the political ads because we're having many politicians take conservative biblical stances and you listen to the vitriol that's coming against them on these commercials. You know, they're extreme, they're dangerous. They consider us Christians who have absolute values dangerous. They do. It doesn't matter what we say, we're dangerous. You know, we don't want anybody to commit adultery and fornication and be pedophiles. Oh, you're dangerous. How can you, how can you hold such radical ideas? These people should be free to do what they want. You know, you're taking away their freedoms and their fun. Quit, quit having such narrow-minded, bigoted ideas. You know, and we're hearing it over and over how dangerous and, and terrible we are because we have right and wrong. We believe there's right and wrong. And they, and they don't like that. And this is where, where they're going. They get worse 
and worse, without repentance, without revival, they continue to get worse. And it says, but continue you in the things that you have learned and have been assured of knowing them, knowing whom you have learned them. So continue in the things that you have learned. Um, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. What does that mean? When you're going through the trials and tribulations, don't forget what you have learned and know to be true. Because it is real easy to say, well, everything's really bad. It must not have been right in the first place. When we have those trials and tribulations, we need to remember what we know. Very dangerous if we throw away what we know. All right, nope, God, uh, all things work together for good. All these bad things, no way, doesn't, it didn't work. God, you're really sovereign. Nothing happens that you didn't know. Look at all these bad things. You went on vacation. And you, you know, you're, 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 you've lost your mind, God. You don't know what you're doing. We need to be very careful. But a lot of times, that's exactly what we say. God, you said these things, and it's not my experience isn't matching them, so it was a lie. I'm in the dark. Now I'm not going to believe. We need to be careful. Remember what we learned and be ready to obey what we've learned and hold on to what we've learned. And this is the challenge. Everything that we go through has one purpose in our life, to tell us what we, who we really are. It's not telling God anything. God already knows who we are. He already knows what we're going to decide. God, I will never let you down. I will never not go to church. And next thing you know, you're not going to church. Because God worked the circumstances just right to keep you from going to church. Been there, done that. If you'd have told, you know, there was a two-year period where I didn't go to church in my life. I was a workaholic, working too many hours, too tired to go to church. Had good reasons and all the stuff in my own mind. When I was a teenager, if you told me there was ever a time that I would not go to church, I'm going, you are absolutely nuts. There is no way that I would turn my back on church and not go to church. Then I find myself not going to church for two years. You know, there is no way I would do such and such. You know, these people who fall into sins and all these things usually are not doing it because that is what they wanted to do. They just find themselves caught up in a sin because of circumstances that they felt they didn't have any other choice but to do. Uh, you know, an evangelist who falls into adultery, I'm sure that he did not one day say, well, I'm just going to go out and have an adulterous relationship. I want to ruin my ministry. I'm going to ruin the church. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go out and have sex with the women of the church. That was not in their mindset. It just happened to them through a long series of circumstances. Maybe they fell on the 99th person who, who, who sedu tried to seduce them. They probably passed so many times and then all of a sudden just the right circumstances. They were having trouble in their marriage and this person was nice to them, made them feel good. And the next thing you know, they're going way too far beyond what he ever expected. It's, you never know what happens. And this is why we've got to be careful of judging somebody. We don't know how many times they said no especially for a leader. Satan doesn't like leaders. The military has learned over the years that if you shoot leaders, you leave the people without a leader and you might win the battle. Now, before the Revolutionary War, leaders were not shot at in Europe. Why? Because you were probably shooting your cousin. So you didn't aim at your cousin. We in America said, well, you know what? 
it'll be six months before they can get a new officer in here. Let's kill the officers. We made the officers get off their horses. We made the officers lose all of their, all their braids and, and fancy, fancy disguises, and it's been that way ever since. On a, on, a, on a battlefield, the officers, the very first thing they learn is take all the insignias off their collars because they're a target. Satan is no less brilliant. He goes after leaders. And that leader might have passed the test four or five hundred times before they fell. We need to be careful when we, when we judge a leader for their, for their sin. We need to do the same thing we're supposed to do with everybody. Encourage them, build them up, and, and forgive. And it says, no and have been assured of knowing whom you have learned them, of whom you have learned them. We have learned them of God. We need to keep that in mind. And then he goes, and from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through the faith in Christ Jesus. Now he's talking to Timothy. Timothy had grown up strong in the Scriptures. Now we do know in his case, we know his mother's names, uh, mother and grandmother, Eunice and, and Lois. We know his mother and grandmother. They're famous from the previous book because of their faithfulness in raising him up into the righteousness and the standing of the scriptures. We as Christians need to raise up our kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, whoever's in our family line, teach them God's word. Show them God's word. Bring them into where they're going to know Christ. Because most people make a decision for God before they're 12 to 14 years old. Now, not everybody, because we've got lots of people in our church that got saved at a much later date. But the majority of people make a decision for God while they're young. And if they don't, they get to go through a miserable life most of the time. Even some of those that make it that early sometimes go through miserable lives because they don't become disciples. And... Apparently, Timothy became a disciple at a very young age with his, with his mother and grandmother and learned God's word. And this is the beautiful thing about what, what Paul is saying about him. And then we get into a very famous scripture in 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What do we know about this? All scripture is God-breathed. Does that mean every book that claims to be scripture is God-breathed? No, we know there's lots of books that aren't God-breathed. They may be good books. They may be fairly good books, but they're not scripture. scripture What we have in the Bible is scripture. Now, doesn't mean that some of those books aren't valuable books to read can give you good learning, good training, but we do not have to believe every word of that. But because it is God-breathed, we know that God put the words on paper that he wants us to follow. Now, this does, of course, mean the original manuscripts over the years. Some of it has been lost, but you know what? We know one thing about the Bible that we have today is it matches up to the to the old, the old parchments. Every time they find it, they'll go, well, this part might not have been written correctly. And then they find an old parchment that shows us that it was written com- correctly. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're going, we're finally going to find out that most of those Old Testament books that we've been following weren't, weren't written correctly. What did they find out? They were written correctly. Now, it's an amazing thing how God has kept his word, and he's protected it. 
It's the only book in the world that has actively had generations of attack on it. Over and over again, people have tried to destroy the Word of God, to get rid of the Word of God, and God says, no, it is not going to be demolished. It's not going to be taken away. And it has withstood attack after attack after attack, and we still have the Word of God. And it's coming, they'll be under attack again. It's quite likely, again, even in America, that there may be a time, well, that book is what's causing all the problems, so we're going to ban that book, and we're going to get rid of it and make it against the law to have a Bible. It's coming. We need to be ready for it. That's why we need to memorize Scripture so that we have Scripture in our hearts. It's going to come a time when this book will be so precious that we'll be hiding it and wanting it and wanting it and being able to have a hard time to get it. Back before the Iron Curtain fell and the Bamboo Curtain, you know, they were smuggling Bibles in and those churches were hungry for the Word of God. They couldn't wait to get a Bible. And it wasn't so long ago that Bibles were so expensive that most people didn't have them anyway. Before Gutenberg, Bibles had to be handwritten and they cost a fortune. Most pastors did not have Bibles. Many theologians didn't have Bibles because they were so expensive. Gutenberg came along and the price of the Bibles dropped because they could be mass produced. And even then, for many hundreds of years, people still did not have Bibles because they were still pretty expensive. And the colonies, and we don't really realize this, but the First Continental Congress printed Bibles for every citizen of America so they would all have Bibles. You know, try to do that in today's world. Oh man, we'd have a, we'd have a fit. The, the, the world, would, our, our nation would have a fit if they printed out Bibles for the, na for the nation. And they did that in the First Continental Congress, and they should have known according to today's rules. The separation of church and state does not, the worst part about that, that's not in the Constitution. That, that, those words are not in the Constitution. Jefferson wrote those words, but he wrote them to the Dansbury Baptist Association telling them that there's a wall of separation between the church and the state. The state cannot tell the churches what to do. That is the context of his statement, separation, wall of separation between the church and state. And up until the mid-1900s, it was used correctly to say the government couldn't tell churches what to do. And since the 1900s, it got flipped on its ears and says, well, you churches, you need to just stay out of our business because we're the government. It's a big deal. And it's a lie that is being propelled. And it's a total lie. The Constitution just says that Congress shall make no laws regarding the establishment of religion. So we are not supposed to be given any commands by the government to do or not do anything. And so this is a big problem that we're facing right now. And this is why I say if you listen closely to our leaders, you're going to hear them not talk about the freedom of religion. They talk about the freedom of worship. You're not, you can worship and do anything you want, but you don't have the freedom of religion. You can't take your religion outside of your church or outside of your home and apply it to the workplace out into the public square. But you're free to do anything you want in your church. Well, that's not freedom of religion. This is going to be something that is going to be an issue going forward. They're trying to take more and more freedom of religion away, and the religion of choice is Christianity, because we're the one that gives them the most headaches. Because we say, no, homosexuality is a sin. No, we should not have no-fault no divorce. You know, we should not have these things. You know, and they're going, you guys are, you guys are troublemakers. You have, you have standards that we don't want to have to impose on everybody else, so you guys just go away. 
and we don't go away. So we are in opposition to them, so they want to get rid of our freedoms. Now, there are some problems with some of the other religions, but not great enough. But even in Christianity, we're seeing more and more denominations turn away from Scripture. And I've been watching carefully even the Southern Baptists. There are some bad decisions coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention about following Scripture. So there may be a time when we, that I will not say that we're Southern Baptist because of the direction they're trying to turn. Right now, they still, at least outwardly, agree with the Bible. But there's a lot of leaders in that. And where did those leaders come from? Unfortunately, they came from the 80s and 90s when our seminary started to lean liberal and we got control of them, but there was an entire generation who were now coming into power that were taught liberal teachings. And I knew that even then it was going to cost. It was going to cost. And we're starting to see the consequence of almost losing our seminaries. All right, real quick before we lose our time, let's get to this last section. All scripture is given by inspiration. God spoke and is profitable. This is wonderful. It is of value. It is of great cost. And the first one is for doctrine. And we've talked about this word. So many people are scared of the word doctrine. But doctrine just simply means a way of thinking. All right? That's all it means. It's not a scary word. It is just this is the way we think. So we all have doctrine in our mind. Some of our doctrine is poisoned by the world. And we, we have a lot of bad doctrine. The goal is to fill our mind with God's way of thinking. The colleges used to say that you studied doctrines. Now we say they follow majors. And you would be a disciple of some doctrine that you were studying. So we've totally changed this word doctrine and kind of made it a spooky, scary word. But it is just a way of thinking. Knowledge. It's profitable for doctrine. For reproof means a painful <laughs> correction. The other one is and for correction. For correction is just to restore something to its original, original direction. Uh, if you've ever done any sailing, flying, navigating, uh, orientating, you make small corrections. If you don't make those small corrections, you don't end up where you're planning to go. You fire a gun and you're off by just a small smallest percent, you know, angle at the, at the destination when it goes the, the 100, 100 yards or 1,000 feet or whatever, you're, no, you don't hit what it is that you're aiming at. All right? Small corrections. Those who fly say you're always making small corrections because that little tiny thing when you've traveled 1,000 miles, it puts you totally in the wrong place if you don't make the small corrections. So the Word of God is good for correction the tiny, small changes for reproof when we have to go to the woodshed, <laughs> okay? And for instruction in righteousness. And literally, the cultivation of the mind and the, body and the, and the morals is this idea of uh, instruction in righteousness. How are we supposed to live? This is the one that gets us in trouble the most with the world because we get our way of thinking changed, doctrine and that instruction in righteousness. No, this is not what we do. We don't live this way. God said, don't live this way. And if we do, then we go through the reproof and the corrections. All right? So this verse is very important. This is all areas of our life that are affected. How do I think? When I am disobeying, he gives me the, takes me to the woodshed and gives me a spanking. 
He corrects me slightly. When I start going off, the, off, off target, he starts pushing back and saying, no, you belong over here. Go back over here. Go back over here. And then instruction in righteousness. This is what I'm supposed to do in the first place. There's a big distinction between correction and instruction in righteousness. Instruction in righteousness will keep me from going in the wrong direction in the first The correction will say, uh, you're kind of veering off course. Come back. So this is why we get into the word. To, to live, to think correctly, to be directed, to be, to be actually disciplined, and to actually learn how I'm supposed to live in the first place. And the first one is most important, doctrine. How do I think? Once my mind is starting to think correctly and everything's being filtered through how I'm a correct thinking, the rest of it becomes pretty easy. The reproof comes when I'm not paying attention. And he goes, well, hold it. You know, you know that you're not supposed to do this. Let's get you back. Oh, you keep doing this? Let's discipline you. you know, and then when we start going the wrong way, the Holy Spirit comes in and says, uh, no, let's go back this way. That's that still small voice that we hear sometimes usually ignore. Nope, not going to listen. I'm going to do things my way. And it's for instruction for, in, for us. And this is why we get into the Word of God. This is why we study the Word of God as much as we do. And then the culmination of all of this, that the man of God may be perfect. And this word for perfect is complete. All right? Not literally never doing anything wrong, but complete in their thought processes and how they think. That they will be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God gives us the ability to be obedient. Comes from the word, comes from the spirit. But he is giving us the power and the knowledge to be obedient if we will just surrender to his word. And this is the, the man of God complete and thoroughly furnished to all good works. I get tired when I'm hearing people go, well, I just couldn't help myself. If you were in my circumstances, you would have been there too. But you know, when we blame it on circumstances, it's because we weren't thinking correctly. We weren't listening to the correction. And then we weren't furnished in, in righteousness, and then we were being reproved. And that's when we go through the hard trials. And that means we have violated four different areas before we get to there. And yet, it is easy to get there. I'm not saying that it's, that it's because what usually happens when I'm doing it, I'm not paying attention to God's word. God, I know I'm not supposed to be looking at that person so lustfully, and I still do it. And then the next thing you know, there's more and more develop, feelings developing. And then you might act on it. David, on his palace roof, looking down at Bathsheba, should have started out with doctrine. Okay, I'm not supposed to be looking at her anyway. You know, and he had people trying to help him. He said, who is that? That's Uriah's wife. Go get her. No, you go, David, that's Uriah's wife. Go get her anyway. You know, he had people actually trying to correct him. But he is king. You know, and so over and over, he violated so many parts of this to go into his sin. And then we saw the reproof and the correction hurt him for the rest of his life and his family. And that is the sad thing. The correction, uh, the reproof rather, can hurt us and have lasting consequences down the road. And this is something that we have to understand. When we disobey, disobedience does not hurt just us can't tell you how many times, well, the only one that's going to be hurt if I do that, do such and such, is going to be me. Well, usually if you're sinning, there's at least one other person involved that is with you. 
and it still will affect your family. People who commit suicide are going, I just got to get out of this world. It's not going to hurt anybody but me. And the person who finds you and, the, and your family who's lost you and you know, all of these things, there's all kinds of people that are affected on something that they will say, the only one being affected is me. We need to really realize there is no such thing as a sin that only affects us. And the more we realize that, the better off we're going to be. Because then we can go, there are others. And I've heard people, well, I have no family. Nobody's going to be bothered if I do such and such. Yes, somebody will be bothered. Somebody will be taken, taken down with you. Somebody will discover your, discover your sin and be dis disappointed. Somebody will be hurt because everybody has somebody that cares for them whether they know it or not. And I've heard people, well, nobody cares for me. Usually the one they're telling that cares for them. And they go, nobody cares for me. And just they won't listen to the fact that they're cared for, that somebody cares for them. You know, there are people out there that will care. Now, you may not know them. You may not realize it, but there are people that care for, for them. And they will keep saying, nobody cares for me. I'm all alone. And they live in the pity party that Satan works in their heart. That even when people do try to do nice things for them, they don't see it. And Satan will go, see, nobody cares for you. They're only doing that to make themselves feel good. They don't care about you. you know, and we need to be very careful about how we look at this. Because it will drive us to despair if we're not careful. And there are always people that are trying to reach out. And usually they're going, well, they don't really care. It's their job or, or they're just going to feel bad about not helping out if they don't help out. They're not, they don't really care. And we need to make sure that we understand there are people who care. And even if it is true that they're only doing it for their job, they're still showing you some kind of care and trying to help you. So they've still got some form of care. People don't get those kind of jobs and do those kind of things if they didn't care about it in the first place. We should be caring for people, caring about people. And if you're somebody who doesn't think people care about you, learn to accept and listen and ask God, saying, God, who's showing me that I'm cared for? And reach out to those people and open up. So many people are so guarded that they won't let people into their life. And sometimes it's because they've been hurt a lot. And I understand that. It's, when you've been hurt a lot, it's hard to open up and let somebody in. Because it's just another person that might hurt you. Sad thing is, if you don't let people in, you'll never get the help either. And we need to understand that. It is scary to let people in, but the, it's even scarier not to let them in. And we want to be very careful about that and, and be able to understand that there are people that want to help. There are people trying to help and be willing to take that chance. And I understand it can be scary. How many times have I been hurt by letting the wrong people in? Now, overall, I've been blessed, but you know, there are people that have said I should never have trusted that person. I should never have let them do anything. And I don't want to ever see us get so scared that we don't, you know, we're afraid to help anybody. We're afraid to open up and let people help us. And that is hard. It is hard to learn to let people help us normally because of our pride. You know, I just can't let, I, if I can't do this myself, I'm not going to let anybody else help me. And men especially have trouble with that. You know, I can't do it myself, nobody else is going to help me. And there's times I might have missed blessings if I didn't do that. Are we open to getting help? And this is something that's very important. Or are we going to be so 
proud that we're not going to accept help. And this is a place that is going to be very critical for us. How do we react to those God puts in place to bless? When we make mistakes, we need to realize we make mistakes, admit to God that we made a mistake, and live in the consequences of that mistake. And then watch God bless in spite of it. And sometimes he says, you're just going to live in it. Some mistakes cost a lot. Some mistakes are not that bad. And we need to understand that when we disobey God, there's consequences. We get the reproof. And we can't be arguing and complaining about the reproof that comes our way. Because it is what it is. We reap what we sow. We, we sow disobedience, we will get the reward of that disobedience. And it's something that most people complain. God, why are you letting these things happen? Well, if you hadn't done the wrong things in the first place, then you wouldn't be where you're at today. And I've seen so many people that run away from their problems. The problem that we have, we need to face it and say, God, okay, what do I need to change? What, about, what is it about me that is causing these problems? And there are many pastors who leave, the, leave their church every, every five to six years because problems. And they go take another church and they end up with the same exact problems because they're not looking at themselves and saying, uh, you're the problem. And I used to teach managers the same thing. You can keep changing from store to store, but you're going to have the same problems when you don't realize that what you are doing is causing the problem. And we need to look at ourselves and say, what is the consequence of what I've been doing? Lord, we ask you to bless us as we go about our business. Lord, help us to learn to follow you in all that we do, to keep and, and leave, lead, live with you in your, in your truth. Help us always to seek you and to understand that you are always in control. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.